Hey, everyone. I want to welcome you back to the uh, bonus interview edition of the Mo News podcast this week. As we officially head into the final stretch going into midterm elections this cycle, it's only just a couple weeks away. We're taking the temperature today of American democracy. There's two experts out with a new book who say, actually, we have a pretty bad fever and they're pretty worried about the prognosis of our political system. I had the chance to sit down with CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett and longtime elections expert David Becker. They are out with a brand new book called The Big Truth. Both of these guys have worked on these issues, covered these issues for decades. In their new book, they delve into the dangers of the escalating rhetoric, the persistent 2020 election fraud claims, and how they've warped the views of millions and how valid and legitimate our elections are. The book lays out the impact that these claims are having over time and the dire consequences they could have on next month's midterm elections and beyond. Some of this may sound stark, you know, we're talking about the future of our democracy, but it's a really important conversation to have. What I like about the way they approach this is they're not trying to be too hyperbolic, but they're trying to be realistic about what's happening. Uh, the way they frame it is interesting. America is currently 246 years old. They're worried about where we'll be on our 250th birthday. We turned 250 in just about four years in the year 2026. But the bigger question they ask is, can we make it to 300? Can we make it to our 300th birthday in the year 2076? What will America look like if we continue to go along this road politically? Major Garrett and I were colleagues at both Fox News and CBS News, where we covered hundreds of political events, multiple national elections. Major has covered Washington for several decades since at the White House, the Capitol. He's interviewed multiple presidents um, and really brings an expertise here. Uh, for his part, David Becker has been working on um, elections. Uh, voting issues for decades himself at a nonpartisan organization. I know you will find this conversation fascinating. Uh, we talk about the roles and responsibilities of the Republican Party, the Democrats, the media. I will challenge them on their analysis. You know, it felt like in the 60s and 70s that the country was coming apart. Why is now different? Why we should be more worried this time around. They also talk about how all this rhetoric we're hearing from politicians about uh, the enemy, the enemy is really corroding our nation uh, and really tearing us apart. But not to worry, it's not all uh, depressing here. We also talk about solutions uh, and why we can be optimistic at times about uh, where things are going. But this is a very sobering and necessary reality check on where we are at, where our politics are at, where our elections are at. Uh, and things to really be aware of uh, in the coming months and years. Before we get started here, a reminder to follow the show on whatever app you're listening to us on. Following will ensure you don't miss a single episode. Also, if you can, leave a review. Every review helps this show grow. Tell a friend about the Mo News Podcast. With that, here's our conversation about the state of American democracy. Major Garrett David Becker, authors of the new book, The Big Truth, I want to thank you very much for joining me today. Great to be with you, Mo. Good to be here, Mo. Major, I should note, I have been very lucky to have worked with you at two national networks, first at Fox News back in the early 2000s, where I first learned uh, political coverage, presidential campaign coverage from you during the 2008 presidential campaign. Fast forward to CBS News, where we covered the 2016 presidential election, two very different elections where we saw growing signs this country was more divided than ever before through 08, through 16. Then we had 2020. I want to begin there. Where are we today after what you have watched over these last two decades or so? That's a very big question. Uh, I, will, I will try to give a, a compact and, and coherent answer. We're a very stressed country, and our politics has moved from 
parties and ideology and much closer to identity, to our own sense of self and our own place in the American story. And that sense of identity is very personal. It feels primal. Uh, people in the therapeutic world might say it feels existential. And what does that mean? It means that for people who are deeply involved in politics, the risks feel greater. The stakes feel greater. Whether they are or not is not really important because these feelings run deep. And the depth of these feelings is manifesting itself in dramatically different reactions to political outcomes. January 6th is the most vivid, horrible manifestation of reactions to political outcomes. Violence to thwart a peaceful transfer of power. This identity exists on both sides of the political spectrum, and it leads us to think about fellow Americans in ways I'm not familiar with in my experience covering national politics since 1990, meaning it is more easy now and more rapidly assumed that someone with whom you disagree is not someone with whom you disagree or even a disagreeable fellow citizen, but an enemy. And when Americans regard each other as enemies, lots of psychic space is open to them, dangerous psychic space, because if you're an enemy, you don't have to be argued to a different conclusion. You have to be defeated, summarily defeated, vanquished. That's what you do to enemies. And those psychic energies we can see in lots of different parts of American politics right now. And we wrote the book in order to offer a warning about the dangers of this psychic energy, these psychic forces. And they played themselves out and are beginning to play themselves out more conspicuously in the election space. And as we argue in the book, that's the last place they should be because our elections have never been better, more verified, more verifiable, more transparent, and more trustworthy. Never. It's not even close. This is the good news. But in that good news is wrapped in this aura of doubt, cynicism, denialism, and rage. When we texted last week, Major, about the release of the book, you wrote back uh, to me, this is a book I had to write. I just wish I didn't have to write it. 100%. It, 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 people say, where'd you find the time? Well, I found the time because I found the calling. David and I both did. Yeah. We had to write this book. We had to say something about the 2020 election that will be permanently true. The deniers, the liars, the grifters, they will fade away. They always do. It takes a long time, but they always fade away. Because permanent truth lasts. That's why they're permanent. And what we say about the 2020 election isn't going to change. It's not subject to debate in terms of the methodologies, the understanding of the rules before the election, the post-election litigation. All the things that made this election believable and verifiable and verified are true today. They'll be true two years from now. They'll be true 10 years from now. The lies, the deniers, the grifters, they'll all have drifted away in whatever capacity. But we had to write this book to put that marker in the ground about what happened and why it's meaningful and why we need to dispense 
with this denialism because it will only lead to first a dissolution, then the ultimate destruction, irreparable destruction of the democratic experiment. David, you start the book out in chapter one and you waste no time, um, literally the first line, America's second civil war could start with a bang or with a whimper. Uh, you lay out a scenario to begin this book. Uh, David, I'd like you to explain that scenario, why you chose it, uh, and, and what it could say about what we might expect over these uh, next couple of years. I th yeah, one of the things that struck us um, as we were considering writing this book, and the book evolved over time from a from a, um, you know, Major and I talk about it, a love letter to the election officials who were heroes of democracy and somehow managed the highest turnout in American history during a global pandemic and their, and their work uh, withstood the most intense scrutiny ever to something more, which was where is the ongoing election denial taking us? And it occurred to us that this wasn't something that could only afflict one party, that one party was immune to it. I mean, to be fair, it's uh, almost all of it is in one party right now, but this is a sickness that could afflict everyone. And um, we wanted to paint a scenario where um, where democracy comes off the rails uh, sooner rather than later, especially if people, as people talk about 2024, one of the things that occurred to both Major and myself is, well, we've got an election coming up in 2022 where a lot of the um, combustible material is already there and it's just waiting for a spark. Um, Major and I had an internal discussion about what that spark was, and that's where the bang and whimper come. It could come from an incident, a violent incident in a polling place, which causes outrage and causes people to doubt uh, an election in a very large state. And what might come of that over time as um, both sides start escalating and determining what they might do, uh, it could also come just from the, the slow erosion of norms and guardrails of, of democracy where the doubt festers, outcomes are such that people don't like the outcomes. And we get to the point, and Major alluded to this before, if you start seeing your fellow citizens as your enemies and you believe that if they take power, they will do lasting damage to the country, um, and then you also get to the point where you will not allow yourself to believe that a secure election uh, had integrity, if the other side won, you can start justifying some pretty reprehensible behavior, and you can start operating in such a way if you're if you're in if you're in government to dissolve the ties that bind us. I mean, we um, one of the things that strikes me working in elections for 25 years, we talk often about um, the principles of democracy. But democracy, as wonderful as the Constitution is, as wonderful as the principles in there, and we all adhere to them or ch or choose to adhere to them. It's fundamentally an agreement between citizens that we're going to bind ourselves to a common set of principles. And if some citizens choose to, um, to, to, to uh, separate themselves from that agreement, as we're seeing right now, start saying that the rule of law no longer is the last um, is, is the way we exhaust our remedies, that we can go to political violence, that we in one state don't feel ourselves bound to this other state. And we can, um, we can talk of boycotts. We can talk of sending migrants to other states and letting them be their problem. All of these things are happening around us now. And to some degree, it's evidence of the dissolution of the bonds between us as citizens and as states. And if we get to the point where we can say, oh, we cannot let this other party rule, um, and we're not going to allow ourselves to believe that they won legitimately, um, 
where are we as a democracy? And the, the answer is we're in a very, very dangerous place. And um, uh, whether it's uh, just that we slowly dissolve our bonds between us as states or we, um, uh, we kind of have incendiary incidents uh, of political violence all over the country, um, those, you know, that, those are both possibilities. And we're, they're not predictions. Nope. We think we can avoid this. It's the reason we wrote the book. But mm-hmm. we, have to, we have to look at the possibilities here with open eyes. So what is your response then to people who read the book or at least read the first line of the first chapter, see the word civil war and say, guys, you're fear mongering. <laughs> right. Sure. So in the introduction to the book, we make it clear that we're going to engage in something that Margaret Atwood called speculative fiction. Margaret Atwood said that about The Handmaid's Tale. And what she said about that at the time was what she wrote about in that book contained nothing that hadn't happened, wasn't happening, or wasn't being contemplated Mm. at some place in in the world. And so what we do with that first line is to describe something that is talked about already in America. You know this. The polling data is clear. People have an anxiety about either political violence, those who participated in the most violent contours of the January 6th riot on the Capitol spoke openly in their chat rooms before January 6th about a coming civil war that they wanted to be involved in. Militias in Michigan have used this exact same language. It is visible in chat rooms all across the internet, not the dark web anymore as it was four or five years ago. It's there. And so to shy away from that underlying reality without putting all of the cautionary language that we put in the book around it, we are not toying with this. We're not playing with it. We're not saying, well, we wonder what would happen. We're saying, no, we are encroaching on this very dangerous space and we need not encroach a step farther. But if we do, we warn you, this will take on an accelerating velocity of self-righteous rage. And if those dimensions of self-righteous rage on both sides or just one side are unloosed, we will be in a very dangerous place. That is not a prediction. It is a warning. And I felt and David felt compelled, compelled issue that warning. And, and I should also add, um, we did product test some of this a little bit with some of our harshest critics, meaning our friends and family and colleagues. And we, you know, I, I, we floated some of these ideas with people, you know, in my space, it's really um, pe- the election space. And it's deeply sensitive yeah. in that space, deeply sensitive. And, and, and I said, is, is, are, are we going too far? Are these, are, are these unrealistic? Is this alarmist? And um, every single person, I was begging them to tell us that we were out of our minds. Mm. Um, it would have been very comforting mm-hmm. to be told that we were out of our minds. But every single one of us said, no, this, this could happen. Um, I, mean, I, I lay awake at night thinking about this. Yeah. I'm fearful of this. Uh, these are not direct quotes, but they're composite quotes from people in this space who have these, who's, who have these legitimate fears and actually kind of urged us to give voice to them in a cautionary way, in a careful way. And that's what we tried to do. And, and I, I just want to add really quickly, I mean, we again, we talk about that agreement between citizens and a democracy. That agreement nearly broke down in January of 2021. 
and in, in, in the weeks preceding that. We now know, and one of the things that kind of broadened this book for us, that this January 6th wasn't some riot that got out of hand. It was, a, it was the planned and natural um, coordinated outcome of weeks of, um, of, of uh, machinations by people at the highest level of government. And, but for heroic efforts, um, dutiful efforts by people in the Department of Justice and the Department of Defense and the Department of Homeland Security and even the vice president himself. And Metropolitan Police and yes. Capitol Police on the scene getting beaten and bludgeoned. Absolutely. Um, this, only because there were human beings who stepped up and said, we are not going to allow this to continue and go this far. Did we avoid what could have been something far, far worse? Um, I mean, we all... You know, I will never forget those hours on January 6th. I know Major won't. Um, you know, we didn't know how it was going to end. Um, and so I think in that light, you know, in some ways, uh, you might even you, you might even say we were a little measured in, in this because it, it as, as Major often says, the Civil War we're talking about is not with bullets and bayonets. It, it, it was chilling to watch those images. I mean, as somebody who, you know, covered national politics down in Washington, walk those halls of the U.S. Capitol to see those images play out. It's it's almost it's almost hard now, even though it's been, you know, a little over uh, uh, 18 months to reimagine the feelings I was having that day and I'm uh, feelings many Americans were having that day. And so we look at it through the rearview mirror being like, well, there's a bunch of jokers attempting a coup. Um but this was a, a serious thing. I appreciate what you guys try to do in the book where you also try to bring in some historical perspective. You talk about how as we approach our 250th birthday uh, in the next few years, you talk about what things were like as we approached our 200th birthday in the 60s. The assassinations of JFK, RFK, MLK, Vietnam, uh, LBJ uh, not running for a second term. And then, of course, uh, what took place with Watergate, that things were didn't seem assured as we entered our 200th birthday, but you're even more concerned as we enter our 250th birthday and you even throw out there, well, will we make it to 300? Will we make it to the year 2076? Mm -hmm. I'd love for you to, uh, you know, I think the quote in the book is, we're not resurrecting past traumas to tranquilize current anxieties. Where are we compared to the times past? Because some people will say, the critics will say, well, you know, we, we got through World War II, we got through the Great Depression, mm -hmm. we got yeah. through... The, the tumultuous 60s, why is today different? So uh, I did a lot of reading about this um, for that very reason, to, to try to have a sense of confidence describing where we are as compared to other times of our history that were deeply, deeply traumatic. Um, and one thing we have to acknowledge uh, that is different from all those other periods is the franchise is now universal. All Americans now have the opportunity to vote. Up until the mid-60s, that was not true for African Americans. Not guaranteed. And so that inclusion separates these traumas from all those other ones, by and large. Because even after the Voting Rights Act, it took some manner of years for things to percolate properly to election administration to see that African-Americans were able to exercise without intimidation or harassment their right to vote. 
But things were deeply turbulent in the 60s. As you know, I'm a reporter of a certain age. That age is 60. I was born in 1962. My blinking eyes of aware of the outside world started in about 1967, which also culminates with the most traumatic five years of the Vietnam era and the civil rights era. I had two cousins who were fighting in Vietnam. I remember with my mother putting care packages together for them. Their fate was part of the evening news every night. I was riveted to every headline about the war, even as a five-year-old, a six-year-old. I cared about this intensely. I remember those traumas, and I remember hearing my parents talk over dinner about their fear that this country was coming apart at the seams. I remember that phrase that they used over the dinner table. That was a traumatic time, but at no point in that time did that sense of trauma or uncertainty visit itself upon the process of electing people. Never. Not even for those who were beginning to participate in that process for the first time after being denied their entire natural lives did they doubt it. And trust me, they would have had reason to doubt it, having been denied so long. So this idea that, that the structures, the, the scaffolding, is rickety when it isn't, that's different. And it's deeply destabilizing in ways that don't allow any of the other things to be debated because authority is conferred by consent. If you deny consent, there is no legitimacy or authority conferred. And then it all falls apart. You want to talk about inflation, crime, immigration? They're all non-discussable. If there's no authority conferred by the process of electing people. It's so fundamental. And that's why this feels different to David and myself. Yeah. And I, I just add briefly, I mean, you know, in, you know, that, that whole period of time from the late fifties to the mid seventies through the civil rights movement, through the assassinations, through Vietnam, and then through Watergate, um, president Nixon did some uh, pretty awful things. Um, I mean, it's 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 almost naive, though, to remember that Watergate was actually spurred by a um, really stupid and unnecessary burglary of the DNC headquarters in an election that Nixon was almost certainly going to run away with and win anyway. Um, and then the cover up, of course. But Nixon went after he resigned and he he fought tooth and nail to stay in. Two things happened. One once it became clear what he knew and what he had led in the conspiracy, um, his own party went to him and said, enough, that is it, you are done. And then secondly, when he left, he did what he should have done, which was to quietly retire back to San Clemente and walk the beaches and not go out on a tour to talk about how the federal government that he himself had run and somehow conspired against him. Um, and uh, he certainly didn't leave a... $500 million grift that was lining his own pockets in his last years. Um, that, that movement aided by technology like social media is very, very dangerous right now. And, you know, it, with when you have tens of millions of Americans, potentially half, over half of the Republican Party, believing the lies about election theft, um, where, where this could lead us, you know, it keeps, I think it keeps us both up at nights. You, you drill down, I mean, the, the book is called The Big Truth. You drill down on the big lie um, and all the various explanations, uh, some literally at odds with each other. Was the vote rigged in 2020? Was it ballot stuffing? 
Um, it was an election, as you point out in the book, that had more observers from both parties than ever before. Uh, there's some pretty straightforward explanations for the uh, things that uh, some construe, the believers in the big lie construe as uh, reasons for the uh, for uh, the corruption, the perceived corruption. And, and then, of course, we had the events of January 6th. And I guess maybe it was naive of many of us to assume that after January 6th, the uh, belief, the persistence of the big lie would go away. As you've watched what's unfolded after the past 18 months, beyond the, the tour that former President Trump has been taking, uh, why is it do you think that it feels at times that not only has the big lie persisted, but it, it's grown in some ways? So, so I, you're exactly right. I mean, I remember in the days after January 6th thinking this is a moment and both parties could come together and seize that moment to find these areas of consensus. We talk about Electoral Count Act reform and other things to make sure. I mean, what they could have done is come up with a, a you know, I, I often imagine in my fantasy world, looking back on it, they could have come together with some really basic consensus ideas around elections including Electoral Count Act reform, and made it the first bill that they delivered to President Biden when he came into office. And it wouldn't have to have been the 935-page For the People Act. You know, it could have been a 20-page, 30-page bill that Democrats and Republicans could have come together on. Um, I think it's fair to say there were actors across the political spectrum who squandered that opportunity, and uh, it's too bad. Um, meanwhile, um, you know, the day after January 6th, um, grifters working for, for, for then President Trump were down in Coffee County, Georgia, even after Biden had been formally elected in the joint session by the Electoral College in Congress. They were still working on the grift literally the morning after, about 12 hours after, less than 12 hours after the final vote. And we know now that that, that conspiracy has just been ongoing and it is largely driven by the money. They're, these, I mean, the, the sincerely disappointed supporters of the former president who wanted President Trump to win, they're not bad Americans, most of them. They just have different political philosophies. And their disappointment in the election, which all of us can empathize with, we've all experienced electoral disappointments, is being exploited for profit and for temporary power. And um, it, I have to admit, I get a little bit angry when I think about the small dollar donors, maybe living off a pension or social security, who are sending $25 to line the pockets of people who are lying to them. And that's been going on now for approximately 700 days since the 2020 election. Because every explanation, here's my air quotes, comes with a price tag. Now, this is a pretty big topic. Was the election safe and secure and reliable? Pretty big. I would think if you really had evidence, I mean, if you really could prove this thing, this so terrible thing, a presidential election was hijacked criminally, fraudulently, and you were a deeply patriotic, altruistic American, you wouldn't sell that information. You'd provide it. You'd say the whole country needs to see it because it's so important. It's so vital to our whole future. I give this to the country because I believe in its future. And yet, and yet, 
Every explanation, and there are many, I've lost count. It's more than 15. Yeah, the goalposts have been moved more times than we can count. Every time, there's a price tag attached. You have to pay. Buy Mike Lindell's products. You have to pay. Pay, pay, pay. There's always a hook, a financial hook for the purveyors. And I would ask people, if this information were so believable and so true, and you believe so much in the country, wouldn't that be evidence and information you would have to, by your own moral construct, give away because of its importance? It's shattering. Important? No, no. We must pay for it. Yeah. I. I can I? Can I? There's two. There's two great examples of this that I want to raise. One is the idea that the voting machines miscounted the ballots. That ignores the fact that 95% of all ballots, the highest number ever were paper ballots that we can go back to and recount and audit many times. They were recounted in an audit. They were checked many times. In fact, the cyber ninjas in Arizona got a hold of all of the ballots in Maricopa County. And you know what they found? They found actually Biden. Well, I, I would I want to use the term found in air quotes, too, because they're, they're it was Methods. an incompetent. This was uh, this was after they tested the ballots for Chinese. Bamboo. Or bamboo, bamboo. Yeah. Yeah. But but they actually looked at the paper ballots by hand and it confirmed the results. The technology did not change that. Um, similarly, when we talk about this um, docu- quote unquote documentary about supposed ballot harvesting, which is alleging theoretically that there were operatives getting a ton of ballots and delivering them, um, the operatives, the, the, the people behind the documentary themselves, when they've been under oath, have said, we don't have evidence of a single invalid ballot, not one. And two jurisdictions asked for the evidence. Exactly. So both Arizona and Georgia, Republicans in both those areas said, "Okay, you have evidence. It's your duty to bring it to us and we will investigate it. One even subpoenaed them for that evidence. That evidence was never produced. They don't have any evidence. They want to keep promising. You know, if you watch the Lindell rallies, et cetera, they want to keep promising, oh, the evidence is coming. We're going to drop a bombshell lawsuit. We've got this great piece of evidence and it never comes. But the pleas for more funding always come. Those are always there. All right, everyone, before we bring you more from our fascinating conversation with David and Major, I want to take a quick ad break here. This really is big news as we continue to grow this podcast. We have our first big sponsor this week. That's Athletic Greens. I just started taking their AG1 supplement powder a couple weeks ago, and I'm very excited to share my experience with you. So last year, I was feeling a bit sluggish. I ended up meeting with a nutritionist. They ended up prescribing me a whole regimen of vitamins, some to take at breakfast, some for lunch, and some for dinner. It really is a lot of pills to keep track of and has gotten a bit expensive. My goal was to replace some, if not all of those supplements, and I have been able to do that now with just one scoop of the AG1 powder. I had one this morning. You just throw a scoop of the powder into a glass of water, and it's really that simple. The AG1 powder contains 75 important ingredients, tons of vitamins, minerals. It also has pre and probiotics to support gut health. All of this really combines for a strong immune system as we head into cold and flu season. Really view it as your nutritional insurance policy. So we're excited to have Athletic Greens and their AG1 powder as our sponsor here on the Mo News Podcast. And we have some extra good news if you're a Mo News listener. If you head right now to athleticgreens.com backslash Mo News, they have a special offer for listeners. In addition to the monthly deal for the AG1 powder at less than $3 a day, you will also get a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D 
and five free travel packs of AG1. Again, the website is athleticgreens.com backslash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S, to learn all about what AG1 can do for your health and take advantage of this offer. Again, you get those 75 important ingredients with that powder daily for just about $3 a day, along with a special Mo News offer here, a one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. I, I want to talk about the roles and responsibilities um, and uh, the blame by various factors, by the by social media, by by the national media, uh, and by the parties. I want to begin with the Republicans here. You'll hear the debate among Republicans. Um, some of them say, you know, this is a Trump problem. Some of them say Trump isn't the problem. He's the symptom of a larger problem. Uh, we speak uh, today, as I saw the headline in the Washington Post, that McConnell and Schumer have agreed to back the uh, reform of the Electoral Count Act. Right. Uh, but so Mitch McConnell, uh, you know, seems to be agreeing here to some reforms related January 6th. But I want to talk larger about the state of the Republican Party, the responsibility they have, uh, and why is it that they weren't able to repeat what took place around Nixon in his final weeks as his party came to him saying, time's up. And why is it that 18 months after January 6th, the Republican Party seemingly still feels like uh, they need to follow whatever the former president uh, has in mind? So, so one of the trend lines that I've observed in covering national politics since 1990 is the hollowing out of national parties uh, as an institution. Um, they're much weaker than they used to be. They, they don't have the convening authority. They certainly don't have the discipline ath disciplinary authority that they used to have. And they don't have the ability to sort of say as a party, which it used to be able to do, uh, this nominee is not running in this particular race at this particular time. We will choose it because we are on high running this national party and we have lots of interests and we manage those interests in jurisdictions large and small. That was very common in both parties in the 50s and 60s and the 70s, even through the 80s. could almost say it was a little bit uh, anti-democratic in a way, no, Major? Well, it's, it, it, it is it, the idea that it is of a consent and they worked hard to achieve those positions of party power. But yes, they, they had a kind of veto authority before the democratic process that was visible to the rest of the country was even in motion. So yes, but that's, that's one of the things that comes with politics. That's why they say politics ain't beanbag. It's not an easy thing. You have to acquire power. And once that power is acquired, you have to distribute it in ways that allow you to continue to hold it and distribute it. And National parties used to do that with much greater authority and much greater disciplinary effect and much greater selective effect, meaning you're going to run and you're going to run and you're not and you're not and you're not. Parties don't have that authority anymore. And I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it is an unmistakable trend. What does that mean? It means at the grassroots level, at the activist level, there is much more energy and that energy percolates up and radiates up. And in this particular question, because of the denialism that started with then-candidate Trump before the 2016 election was held and decided, he said at a debate quite famously, he was uncertain if he would accept the results. From that point forward, those in the Trump orbit have been willing to place their doubts about election outcomes on a scale. And that scale is their satisfaction with the results. So the more satisfied they are with the results, the more belief they have in the election results. And quite obviously, 
The counter is true. If they're dissatisfied, then the election results are invalid. And that is a percolating energy that now flows up. And I can't tell you how many Republicans I've talked to who said, my people believe this. Therefore, I must believe it. I cannot argue my people out of this. If I do, I will lose my job. Well, I would say, I'm sorry. You accepted a position of leadership. And part of the burdens of leadership on some matters, and I would say the preservation of the Constitution, the furtherance of our democratic experiment is one of them. You have to say, no, I'm sorry, you're wrong. And if you defeat me because you're wrong and I'm telling you the truth, so be it. Because my holding of this job, based on that illegitimate perspective of yours, it's not a job I'm any longer interested in. I keep waiting for that to happen. It happened in a few cases, but not nearly as many as I expected. Yeah, I mean, Archibald Cox wasn't worried about losing his job. Um, and, uh, and I think one of the big differences here is that after Richard Nixon left office, he didn't go around calling people like Archibald Cox and others rhinos um, to the degree that term even existed back then. Um, was it a failure of imagination or was it just kind of Nixon's respect for the no. I, I want to give. I, I don't. I don't want to judge Nixon. We have to remember Nixon was the same. He was the same person for all of the bad that he did. He had that moment on January 6, nineteen sixty one, where he presided over the joint session of his own defeat, mm. and did so with dignity, with passion, um, with respect for institutions. I mean. This doesn't make everything he did after that okay. Not close. But it's also fair to say that Nixon had lines he would not cross. And we have not seen evidence of that yet from former President Trump. And unfortunately, and one of the th I think one of the other things that's been lost in the narrative, and we talk about it in the book to some degree, is um, we often talk about the Republican Party as a monolithic entity. It's obviously not. But there were many, many Republicans who did stand up at the DOJ, at the DOD, at DHS, at the FBI, within the White House, within White House counsel's office. And election administrators around the country. And election administrators. I mean, we're, you know, Brad Raffensperger, when he ran for Secretary of State of Georgia in 2018, did not think his name would be a, a household name. Um, and it is now. And uh, for good reason. And, and yet at the same time, you see what happened to the so-called impeachment 10 the uh, 10 members, 10 Republican members of, of the House who voted to impeach Trump after January 6th, I think only one might return to Congress. Uh, right. At, where is the party when you talk uh, to your sources, senior Republicans, uh, obviously off camera, behind the scenes, how do they feel about where things are headed and how much control they potentially could rest back? And again, speaking to this larger question, is Trump the issue here? Or is he the symptom of a larger issue that was manifesting itself within the party major as somebody who's you know, covered this party for 30 years? So anger about Democrats and deep suspicions about Democrats predated candidate and president and former President Trump. That's true. But they have been amplified to such a greater extent by him and by his participation in politics by a factor of about 10. Um, that was running through the Tea Party. There, there were expressions of, of anti-democratic or, or hostility toward Democrats in the Obamacare debate uh, that were pretty nasty, but not nearly as nasty as this. It has been amplified and intensified by 
Donald Trump and Donald Trump only. And that energy is at the grassroots level. And again, it radiates up and plenty of Republicans feel that they simply cannot confront it until it subsides. And they tell themselves something that I think is kind of a fairy tale, which is this. Oh, someday he'll go away and this will all subside and we'll get back to normal. That is a fairy tale and a dangerous, deeply, deeply dangerous fairy tale. Because in that intervening period, things that are untrue will be allowed to be believed as true and they will be unforgettable. So if you, if you spend two years or four years doubting election results, guess what you're going to spend the next six years doing? Doubting election results. You're not going to suddenly say, oh, no, they're all good now. Once you're trained in this mindset, it will continue. And this fairy tale, oh, when Trump goes away, we'll all go back to normal. The normal won't be there. That's why it has to be confronted. And I don't care if you're going to lose your House position. If you want to hold your position in the House of Representatives for a country that's falling apart around you or say, no, I'll give up my house seat now, tell the truth and run again when truth resurrects itself. And sleep at night. Right. In the meantime. And sleep right? at night in the meantime. I, you know, I mean, I, 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 if I, can yeah, I yeah, just for a second. So I, I think I, I tend to be someone who thinks Trump is more of a symptom than the cause, but I will also say I, I will, I'm going to do an old lawyer, lawyer tactic, which is I'm going to choose to answer a different question, which is, um, I think regardless of the cause, where we are today is that if Donald Trump disappeared tomorrow, we're still in dire straits. And this, what, what's, what has metastasized in the last several years no longer relies upon Donald Trump for it to continue to grow and fester. And I think that's, that's what's so troubling about this because we would have thought that there would have been um, serious people, conservatives, who would have more of them who would have stood up. I've talked, I, I mean, uh, Judge um, uh, J. Michael Ludig has talked about this incredibly passionately. Um, probably one of the most gifted conservative legal minds of his generation, a man who was on the shortlist for the Supreme Court. Um, and he is, he is, he, he cannot, he cannot process the fact that more have not s spoken up. And said, "No, this is this is a path we will not take. Holding temporary power, having the speaker's office, is not worth this compromise of principles." And as Major pointed out, give a mouse a cookie. Um, you know, it's it's never just one, right? You once those principles get eroded, once you make those little compromises, there's no going back. That's the new normal. I, I want to talk about Democrats here. Elections mm -hmm. are a choice. We have a two-party system. Of course. Um, What's been remarkable to me is uh, the rhetoric here from Democrats, which is, oh, my God, our democracy is falling apart. These election deniers are terrible. At the same time, we sit here uh, with a few weeks to go in midterm elections. Democrats have been propping up election deniers in Republican primaries in the tens of millions of dollars. Some of those candidates uh, have won the hope from the Democrats, the strategy here in a Machiavellian way is that by propping up the big lie advocates, they're going to make their general election of Democrats easier when uh, folks go to the ballot box uh, in November and they have a choice between an extreme Republican and their Democrats. Um, talk to me about the Democratic role here uh, in saving our democracy, so to speak, in the big truth uh, and 
especially given what we've been seeing happen this cycle? Well, fundamentally, I don't believe we need the Democratic Party to save democracy. Every American can save democracy. Yeah. It's very simple. Every American can save democracy. And I often tell people, I know you're dissatisfied. I just ask you this question. Can you focus just a little bit less on your satisfaction index and a little bit more on the quality of your participation? Um, but this is where we go to the point, one of the points of the book, this idea, this tactical denialism. Democrats didn't start the process of Republicans nominating people who deny the election. Republicans started that in this current phase. But Democrats said, we will tactically try to manipulate that to our benefit, to torture that party, which is playing footsie with the furtherance of democracy, in order to have that person be nominated so we can win the next election. That's tactical. We argue that that's net bad for the process because it is a tactical approach to something that should be beyond, be beyond tactics. The believability, the verifiability, the soundness of our elections should be by both parties' consent off limits. Off limits. Now, Democrats say, we, we didn't start this. We didn't start the fire. But we're going we're gonna to manipulate it to our benefit. That's what, that's what every tactical political party does. I hear you. But it blurs lines. It blurs lines where lines not, ought not to be blurred. Well, and, and it's, it's a dangerous game. I mean, that's what Democrats thought they were doing with Trump in 2016, because Trump couldn't possibly win, of course. Um, the possibility exists that some of these election deniers can win. And, Hello. And, yes. and, and the yeah. other possibility that this tactic works is also bad. We already have a warped incentive structure right now where people are incentivized to lie about elections so that they can get rich and hold temporary power. We don't need to warp that even further where both parties and they already do this to some degree. And it's I want to I, I want to say this is different than trying to support a fringe candidate on policy, someone who's outside of the kind of centrist consensus on things like women's health issues or immigration or something like that. That, that I think, is normal politics. Yep. I think we've seen that always. Yep. But when we're talking about the very foundations of our democracy by which we select those who will govern us, we have to agree that that's a little bit out of bounds. And I, I, I really do worry about those efforts. I mean, there is, you know, one of the things that has struck me and we talk about in the book is um, if you look at the draft executive order that Trump was ready to sign but did not in early November, um, which would have authorized, and, and it's still incredible for me to say this, would have authorized the military under the authority of the Department of Defense to seize voting machines. Um, what stopped him from signing it, by the way? Mass resignations, the threat that this would topple everything, and the mm. sense that it was just not, you couldn't, you, you can't do this. But whatever, it came closer than ever imaginable in our history yeah. that that was discussed and put on paper and set before a president. And the point I want to make about that, and it's, I think we're I think we're one of the few who have really discussed it in, in detail. If you look at the first page and a half of that draft executive order, it cites dicta from a federal lawsuit brought in Georgia by leftist hacktivists seeking to force Secretary Raffensperger in the state of Georgia to buy different paper voting machines than they had bought. These are people who had been kind of um, inflating the, the, the um, risks of, of some of the technology that we've had. That was then exploited and used by, ex by, by the losing presidential candidate and his administration and his campaign to argue for seizure of the machines. This is where these, these election denials meet at the bottom. 
the extremes of both sides. And so the Democratic Party and the Republican Party both have a responsibility and people within them for, of active citizenship, of saying that, that we will not go, we will not delve those depths. And to be clear, this is not a moral equivalence. This is not whataboutism. It's just stating that the record is clear. The Democrats raised objections at the fringe level in 2004 and elsewhere, yeah. and those fringe complaints found their way in certain respects into things that are part of our present time. And that's our point. Both parties will use this to justify themselves for their own aims. And in neither case were those allegations based on definitive or even near definitive evidence. Yeah, and I, I should just say, because sometimes I get into trouble on this, um, I, th it is not 50-50 responsibility right now by any means. It is almost all coming from one party, from the, the extreme right wing of the Republican Party. But it's also not 100-0. It might be 99-1, it might be 99.9 to 0.1, but it's not 100-0. That kernel, that seed, that can exist in the extremes of the Democratic Party as well. And that could grow if it's if it's if it seems like the incentive structure continues to be out of whack. And that worries us, because at that point, if you have both sides or all sides not believing the outcome of elections, I, I, I mean, we're lost. I don't know where we are. Uh, two other key elements uh, playing huge roles in society. Uh, the media. I hate the term the media, but I'll go mm -hmm. with the term the media major. Um, yeah. The lessons uh, we've learned uh, since the election uh, the primaries of 2015, the Trump presidency, 2020. What role does the media have in trying to uh, regain trust, help American citizens regain trust in the system? What lessons has the media learned? What is it still getting wrong as we approach midterms now and another presidential? Uh, boy, that's a really simple one. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Separate podcast. We're going to make this a multi-parter. <laughs> Uh, well, look, um, I think the media has to have learned some lessons from 2015 and 2016 when it saw Donald Trump as a ratings machine, as a business enterprise machine to a large extent and, and largely of entertainment value only. And I've said many times, and I wrote it in my book, uh, Mr. Trump's Wild Ride, uh, one of the insights, powerful and important insights the candidate Trump had was by the time everyone understood how serious he was, it would be too late. And that's exactly what happened. So the media plays a, played a role in that, a complementary role, uh, maybe unwitting, maybe witting, but one it has to uh, take account for. Uh, social media is a completely separate universe. Uh, and when we talk about the media and its power, it's fractionally as powerful as it used to be, fractionally as powerful as it was in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even the 90s. Uh, the network newscasts are fractionally as powerful. The major newspapers are fractionally as powerful as they used to be. I, I remember ABC used to tout itself uh, by saying more Americans get their news from ABC News than from any other source, um, which is a distant, distant figment of the past. <laughs> yes, yes, it's simply not true. The atomization of information, meaning you can find what atom of information you want anywhere and algorithmically it can be presented to you in predictable ways to make you satisfied. Uh, is a reality of the business model of information, not of the news media. Trust me, if the news media writ large understood those business <laughs> models better, they'd be more profitable than they are, and they'd have larger audiences. Profits are down and audiences are shrinking. That's a trend line that has been irreversible for 20 years, with the exception of the 2016 campaign and the spasmodic 
tendencies of the Trump administration, but the trend lines remain consistent. Trust and credibility are all on the wane. And uh, so you're asking the wrong person because I've been in the media this entire time. So if I had an answer... <laughs> David, what has Major been doing wrong for 30 years? Um, well, I, I was actually going to say something nice as someone who's only kind of ancillarily connected to media. But I have to tell you, the 2020 election was the best covered election by the media in American history. Um, and by best, I mean most effectively. I mean, there were so many new rules and challenges. This is how Major and I got connected in the first place, because Major saw before a lot that, that th the story was going to be about the process, not necessarily about the horse race. Um, I mean, the horse race is always going to be there. I don't want to minimize that. But, but the, the, I think back to the education that the media did with regard to mail ballots and new options and where to get your information as you're worried about COVID. I think about the education the media did on things like the red mirage and the blue wave, which was not anything nefarious at all. It was natural. In fact, it was caused by Trump's delegitimization of mail voting. So mail votes were, un unlike in the past, were disproportionately democratic leaning. That all came well before the election. I did some of it at CBS, but I want to give credit to the other broadcasting cables, news networks, print media. And I think the problem does come, and we're not going to be able to solve it right here, is that um, I love the term atomization of the news. I mean, that, that, that there's, there's just such an overflow of information from different sources and the, the trusted sources, the election officials, the, um, the, the people who are actually, you know, looking into these issues, expert like, experts like myself, they're, they're being bypassed. I mean, we knew- Or drowned out. We knew exactly what was going to happen on election night. We yeah. talked about it beforehand. We said, look, look, Trump's going to be ahead yeah, not and let the ballots be counted. We didn't know the results. We just knew that the flow of information would take time. I mean, it, it, I mean if, if it was a landslide, there was a chance Biden was, was, was ahead. But in all likelihood, in close states, it was going to gradually as ballots were, were done. And I, and I say, and this is something I've been telling media now, and I think is a really important lesson for 2022. Prepare your viewers, prepare your consumers. We will know virtually nothing on election night. And that is okay. Races are going to be close. Ballots take time to count. The election officials have no control over the margins. When the margins are close, we have to count more ballots. In California, those ballots take weeks to count. We usually don't pay attention to California because the margins are so big. But in some of those congressional races, they could be very narrow. And that could define control of the United States House. And if, if I'm wrong and we do know on Tuesday or Wednesday of, of election week, that's great. But I'd be prepared for Thanksgiving. <laughs> and by the way, the lack of information isn't a sign that shady things are happening. It's just a sign that ballots are being counted. No, in fact, it, it shows you that election officials are working their way methodically through a transparent process to count and recount and double check and triple check everything before they do official results. One of the things we talk about quite a bit is every, everyone who works in this business knows all the results on election night are unofficial. We still come with expectations about what those mean. Right. But official results take weeks in every state. I, yeah. I, I, I want to talk about, again, not a small subject major, but meta, alphabet, Twitter, social media, where more Americans get their news than from any other source mm. these days, yep. um, to borrow the old ABC expression. Um, as you laid out solutions here and things that, you know, major, the major parties need to do, average Americans need to do, institutions need to do. Um, 
they continue to be behind the eight ball, the social media companies. They continue to learn the lessons of the previous election. They make arbitrary rules. Uh, they ban random individuals. Uh, it's a little bit of everything. Facebook has its own Supreme Court of sorts. Twitter was just making arbitrary moves by the executives. What can they do to help the trust deficit in this country? Another big question. And they're yeah. private companies. Okay. So they make their own rules and their consent relationship with their customers is, in theory, transparent. You opt in or opt out. I'm not on Facebook. I haven't been ever. I mean, nominally, I think there's one page out there that's fluttering around. That was, that was formed maybe a, a, a decade ago. I never touched on ever. Everyone, for the record, whatever's on Major Garrett's Facebook page, he is not in control of. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I haven't been on Instagram in four years. I just don't have the time for it. But lots of Americans do, and God bless them. That's great. Um, but the companies um, have at their core a business model in which algorithms work to keep people engaged with their platforms. And those algorithms aren't as transparent as they need to be. People don't understand how rapidly, via algorithms, things that are repeated on their feeds take them in a certain direction, whether they want to be led in that direction or not, to intensify and elongate engagement. This is not my space. I'm not an expert on it, but I do have, and I've read enough about it to know that one thing that could be done is A, to limit, limit some of their protections, um, original protections to allow the internet to flourish. Well, I think it's fairly clear it's flourished. It's everywhere. It's ever present. So it's flourished. We don't need to worry about that anymore. The idea that making things more transparent and giving consumers more information about algorithms or their own engagement on platforms is part of the platform's business model. And therefore, those interests may not be as aligned as the platform consumers might assume they are. All of that would help. Uh, because I do think those algorithms tend to pull people in directions they might not even be aware of. And those directions can, in pretty short order, take you down some nefarious rabbit holes. Yeah, And that is part of this story. We did not wade deeply into that in the book at all, if at all, because it's not my lane. It's not our lane. We wanted to stay very focused on what we defined at the beginning as our lane. What happened, why it happened, who the guardians of democracy are, who the grifters are, or what the grifters are doing as opposed to who they are. We said much more about what they're doing than who they are and why this is a dangerous moment and why we need to hit pause on some of these psychic spasms we're going through. I, uh, it's, it strikes me, I would recommend to folks, if they haven't already read it, the Atlantic piece recently uh, on how social media has led to the 10 dumbest years in American history, uh, based on a larger paper. Uh, and I don't think there's a better headline out there that I've read recently. I want to end here uh, with a question for both of you. You note at the end, uh, I think the quote is, if we're not careful, we'll find it is easier to kill American democracy than it is to sustain it. Uh, we've heard a lot in this conversation. A lot is laid out. A lot feels out of the control of the average citizen, of the average voter. Uh, and that's always the big question that many people will ask is, what can I do? What can I do to ensure America makes it uh, safely and healthily to its 250th birthday, to its 300th birthday, 
what is the set of things that you would advocate an American who cares about their democracy, uh, who cares about the future of this country? What can they do starting today? Um, so, so I think there's a couple of things. Um, first, because I do, I do understand how people feel helpless right now. I mean, it's one of the reasons we wrote the book, and we hope it hopefully ended on a positive note. I think, and my dog obviously agrees with me. Um, uh, the there is a um, we really call on an on an active citizenship here, which is kind of a humble citizenship as well, which is not about power but about kind of democratic process and. I think there are um, a couple of things that that go into that. One, um, I, I, I enjoy, and I really came to it in 2016, a healthy skepticism about all of the information I get, particularly when it validates my own pre-existing views. I don't think we come to it that way. I try to teach my son that that we have to we have to stop looking for validation. And maybe because I'm a lawyer, I've always been help, uh, uh, comfortable with a certain level of disagreement and conflict. And um, and I think we have to be ready for that and 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 really stop. Gosh, I, I try not to share things that validate my view, especially when they come from anger. One very specific thing, though, that I'd like to add, and I won't give Major the last word, is um, a please volunteer to be a poll worker. If you have any doubts about the election process, being a poll worker will assuage those doubts. You will um, you will learn why poll workers have to show up a couple of hours before the polls open and stay for several after hours after the polls close. It is because there are so many elements of a transparent process to check and double check and make sure there are redundancies with multiple observers all the time. It is a wonderful antidote to election denial, and it doesn't matter what your political party or your um, your your philosophy is. Go and volunteer to be a poll worker. Get the training be a part of active democracy. I think it's the best antidote to all of this. I'll be even simpler than that. Believe in your neighbors. Believe in your neighbors. Why do I say that? Elections in our country are one of the most decentralized things we still do as a country. There's a great deal of concern, and we talked about a little bit about this a moment ago, the large social media companies, whatever corporate media power still exists, large banks, large this, large that. Our elections are decentralized. The most decentralized thing this vast 330 plus million country does, all at the local level. When you go to cast your ballot, those are your neighbors. They're running your elections. Believe in your neighbors. And stand up for something that has never been better in terms of its verifiability and its transparency. And stand up for that when the cynics come to call, wherever they come to call, Little League Field, church, dance recital, wherever. Stand up to the cynics. Social media, your phone. Stand up to the cynics. Uh, Lily Tomlin used to say, no matter how cynical I get, I can't keep up. Don't try to keep up. <laughs> I, I appreciate both of you taking the time to speak with me today. You're doing important thinking uh, and writing uh, and storytelling about uh, a country we all love and we're very lucky and fortunate to be citizens of and that uh, things can change quick if you're not paying attention and we shouldn't take anything for granted. Indeed. Thank you, Mo. Indeed. Thank Thanks, you, Mo. Major. Thanks, David. There really was a fascinating conversation. I could have gone on for another hour or two with Major and David. Very thankful to them for spending the time. A reminder, you can get their book, The Big Truth, wherever you buy your books. Again, it's called The Big Truth. You can also catch Major regularly on his podcast. The podcast is called The Takeout. So please go check that out as well. He brings on 
a regular top guest from Washington and politics. Before you go, don't forget to follow or subscribe to the show on whatever app you're listening to us on and leave us a review. Every review helps this show grow. Tell a friend, tell five friends about the Mo News podcast. You can also get updates on the news via the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com. And if you don't already, follow me on Instagram. Head over there at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. I will see you back here for the next daily edition.